Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. When people ask, where is God? They usually aren't looking for an answer like, in heaven, or quizzing you about your understanding of omnipresence. No, this question is often uttered when people are frustrated by their experiences, usually with the problem of theodicy, that is, the problem of evil and why bad things happen to good people, and vice versa. Whether the people were saying it out loud or not, Malachi perceives that this question was being asked in the hearts of his audience. But what seems to be, at best, a lament or, at worst, a complaint, it turns out to actually be a really profound question, especially in light of Malachi's context. The unit dealing with this question begins in 2.17 and extends through 3.5. The chapter division is unfortunate since it overlooks the contribution of 2.17 to the theme of God's presence. So uh, pay attention to these themes as I read our text, starting in verse 17 of chapter 2. You have wearied Yahweh with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? When you say, everyone who does evil is good in the eyes of Yahweh, and he delights in them, or where is the God of justice? Behold, I am sending my messenger, and he will clear the way before me, and suddenly the Lord will come to his temple, uh, which or whom you are seeking, and the messenger of the covenant, which or whom you are delighting. Behold, he comes, says Yahweh Sabaoth, and who will endure the day of his coming, and who will stand at his appearing? Because he is as a refiner's fire and as a washer's lie, and he will sit refining and cleansing silver and purify the sons of Levi, and he will purify them as gold and silver, so they will bring to Yahweh a gift in righteousness. And the gift of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to Yahweh as the old day or the eternal day and former year. Then I will draw near to you for justice, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the hired workers, the widows, the fatherless, and those who stretch out against the stranger and do not fear me, says Yahweh of hosts. All right, now let's take a a few minutes and look at this fascinating and incredible text. Uh, The way things normally are to work in the Old Testament system is that God is to be in the temple. That's where he dwells. But God had dramatically left the temple and allowed the people to be exiled and for the temple to be destroyed. So, for example, thinking of like in Ezekiel, chapters 10 to 11, where the glory of God slowly moves away from the temple. But when the prophets Haggai and Zechariah ministered to the people while the temple was being rebuilt, they gave promises like Haggai 2, 7 to 8, which reads, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. That's from the ESV. So the question turns out to be more theologically complex when we think about Malachi's position in history. In our text for this episode, Malachi 2, 17-3-5, Malachi addresses the people's question, which they were at least secretly asking, where is the God of justice? 
Now, this question reveals a bad attitude. Uh, Malachi parallels it with the people saying that everyone who does evil is good in the eyes of the Lord. From their perspective, there was no advantage to doing good since God didn't repay people for their actions. The righteous were suffering just like the evil. The question here is one that everyone asks or at least thinks about. In fact, the Bible has an incredible amount to say about the question. And since the Bible brings up the topic, we can safely say that it's a good question to ask. And yet, not always. The people of Malachi's day uh, were approaching the topic from a cynical point of view, abandoning hope in God's justice. And more than that, in light of what we read in the whole prophecy, Malachi blames the people for being unfaithful to God by disobeying his law. So the question isn't being asked by like philosophers, nor is it being asked by those struggling with tragedy. It's asked by those who had given up hope and are being lax in their responsibilities towards God. The question was a cop-out to do what is wrong. Um, when the question is asked in this way, the question is something that wearies God. You know, that expression should kind of shock us. It's almost tongue-in-cheek. The rhetorical effect is like Malachi was saying, your whining is so bad it makes the omnipotent almighty God tired. Instead of simply stating God's displeasure and moving on, Malachi camps out on the topic because in probing more deeply into it, he will also address the sinful disposition of the people. To take the question seriously, where is God? Well, he's coming. The commentator Mignon Jacobs notices that this answer, quote, the Lord will suddenly come into his temple, does acknowledge at least some level of legitimacy to the people. She writes, quote, is the Lord not in the temple? The question, where is the God of justice, is not absurd. Rather, it is a legitimate query concerning the apparent absence of Yahweh from Jerusalem, end quote. God had promised he would inhabit the temple again. That's the way it was supposed to work. To see this from the perspective of Haggai, like we saw earlier, was to provide comfort and hope. In a sense, God did seem absent, but he would soon return. And this explains the descriptions, the Lord whom you seek and the messenger of the covenant in whom or in which you delight. Uh, to reference the joy and hope that this was to bring, Malachi 3.1 alludes to a very famous passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 40 verse 1 begins, Comfort, comfort my people. And then it talks about a herald who proclaims the good news of God's arrival to come. The exile would be over and God would once again be in the midst of his people shepherding them. This is a kind of new exodus coming through the wilderness back into the land. That passage in Isaiah 40 also talks about this herald, the voice in Isaiah 43, crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now, Malachi and Isaiah are both utilizing imagery from the arrival of a king. Virhoff, uh, the commentator on Malachi, explains, quote, the notion rests upon an Eastern custom of sending messengers ahead of a visiting king to inform the inhabitants of his coming and to pave the way, to make it passable, literally to remove all the obstacles, end quote. Now, at first blush, this might seem like a happy artistic flourish to uh, the imagery, uh, kind of like companies coming over, so make sure you set out the fine china. But, you know, as the text goes on, it becomes clear that more is going on here. Gibson makes a compelling argument that Malachi 3, 1-3 is dense with allusions to previous scripture, echoing not only Isaiah 40, but also Exodus 23, 20. 
Now, as a side note, his argument is really well done, but we should also note that modern-day scholars aren't the only ones to make this connection. Uh, the Gospel of Mark also puts these uh, passages back-to-back in his introduction to John the Baptist. Exodus 23.20 is particularly interesting. There, in the middle of the covenant stipulations, the Lord says, Behold, I send a messenger or an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Recall that angel and messenger are both English translations of the same Hebrew word. Uh, verse 20, then, is extremely similar to Malachi 3.1, and this just can't be a coincidence. Now, not everything needs to line up in an illusion. That's just not the way the literary device works. Whereas God is coming on the way in Malachi and the people are on the way in Exodus, the overall point is the same. If the people are going to successfully be in the land, they must be very careful to follow the instructions of the person who goes before them. The messenger slash angel in Exodus 23 was sent ahead. He prepared the way by driving out the inhabitants of the land. Now, if this text is in Malachi's mind, and it seems like it is, uh, we have a pretty ironic correspondence. The preparer will come again in the future, but it is not so much the Cainites, the Hivites, and all those other people who need to be expelled. Instead, it will be the people of Israel, those who are not prepared for God's coming. So with that in the background, it makes sense that Malachi leans heavily into this prepare the way part of the imagery. Yes, the Lord was absent and he is coming. And yes, Isaiah's forerunner is announcing his coming. That's all going to happen and it all is happening. But this means the work of clearing the path needs to commence. Properly understood then, this isn't so much a cause for celebration, but actually a cause of repentance. If all we were looking at was Malachi 3.1, this would easily be the kind of verse to print out by itself and just hang on your wall. But Malachi 3.1 leads up to 3.2. But who can endure the day of his coming? The rhetorical question clearly expects a negative answer. Nobody. They asked, where is the God of justice? The following unit describes him. He's coming. But, but notice what this coming looks like. It looks like uh, Malachi 3.5. Then I will draw near to you for justice. It's the same word as 217. Where is the God of justice? And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, and, and so on. In our next episode, we will look more closely at the identity of the different agents described in 3, 1 to 2, which actually turns out to be pretty complicated. Uh, but at this stage, we can note that the God of justice is coming, preceded by the one who prepares the way before him. Now, whichever person is in view, he is described in verse 2 as a refiner's fire and as a washer's lie. The fire imagery refers to a smelter who would heat up a precious metal so that the dross, the impurity, would rise to the top, which could then be removed. It's a frequent image in the Bible uh, of heat, usually associated with judgment or hardship that works on someone or a group of people so that the undesirable elements can be destroyed. Now, there is some precedent for this dross to be washed away with lye, 
So some commentators take the two images as working together, uh, but this kind of comes into trouble with the word for washer and washer's lie. It's easiest just to take the two as saying the same thing. God will have to remove the dross or the dirt. Now there's a play on words here with the last image. Uh, the word for lie, or sometimes translated soap, is actually a rare word. Uh, the Hebrew is borit. For those who have any exposure to Hebrew, you, if you're reading along, you might mistake this for the really well-known vocabulary term that every Hebrew one student knows, berit, which means covenant. So borit means soap and berit means covenant. You want the messenger of the berit? Well, he will be like borit. It's kind of hard to capture it in English, but it would be something like, you want the man of justice? Well, I'll send the man of judgment. Uh, the berit cannot come without the borit. The covenant cannot come without the soap. But what do these pictures represent? Something is being removed, clearly, pictured as dross or dirt, but does that represent the removal of sin or the removal of sinners? Is this a picture of salvation or of salvation through judgment? For most of us, uh, perhaps from past sermons or hymns that we've sung, we've come to think of being washed as a good thing, people for being forgiven of their sin. And, you know, there are definitely passages in the Bible which have this idea. But, you know, the idea of judgment is possible too. Uh, Isaiah 4, 3 to 4, for example, reads, Whoever is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, once the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. So, with both options on the table, judgment does seem like it fits the context of Malachi 3 much better. People will not be able to stand his coming because it is like fire and soap. And yet, this isn't total. It's against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against the false witnesses, and so on in verse 5. Like in Isaiah 4, there will be a remnant left after the process. These are those who will bring gifts to the Lord as in previous times. So the end result of the ordeal of fire and soap shouldn't be missed. The priesthood will be restored. Gifts will be brought to the Lord correctly. Now, the priesthood was contaminated. Remember the earlier part in chapter 2 in our episode about feces on the priest's faces. But this wouldn't be the end. God's not going to let go of his covenant. He will purify the people. And it seemed like God was far off, that he had forgotten about his promises. The shocking news is that God was on the move. He would come, and that suddenly. Yet the Lord is slow to anger, and it is not his will that anyone should perish. We read about the messenger of the covenant, or in Hebrew, the malachi, or the malach of the covenant. This points to someone beyond the author of the book, and we'll get to that in our next episode. But for now, we can notice that God does send messengers of his covenant, people like Malachi. And the reason he sent them is because his desire is for people to wake up, to stop thinking about God's absence as a reason to live however they want, but to respond to it in hope by preparing for his coming. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu partner.